Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. Welcome. The Word of Hope sermon series is a ministry of Grace Family Church of Rhode Island. It was instituted to bring sound teachings from the Word of God to as many people as possible. Our purpose is to offer you a message that is both practical and contemporary, that brings the Word of God to light in a way that makes sense in daily life. As you listen to this message, it is our hope and prayer that the Lord will bless you through it and bring you hope, comfort, and guidance. And now, Pastor Kotze. Let me ask you a question today. Are you holy? Think about that for a second. What comes to mind usually when we ask that question? Most often, the things that come to mind is, am I, am I behaving the way I should? Or am I doing this or that? Or maybe this step or that step or this process or that process or whatever it is that we have in our minds that, by which we evaluate that as required. Isn't that what usually comes to mind when we think of that question? And uh, definitely there is nothing wrong, of course, in doing the right things, but not as an end to itself, because what we are called for, or what we're called to, is really much more. This passage that we just read in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to 23 has a context, and the context, or you might want to say the theme, uh, is clearly found in the previous verse, in verse 16, where it says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Holiness is the very nature of God. It's the way God is. God is holy, and holiness is his nature. So in a way, God here is telling us, You shall be like I am. And you know, God is in the business of making us like him, that we know from many other passages of scriptures as well, even though it seems very clear here. And this passage that we just read today gives us some clues as to how he is doing it and what a difference, what a difference he makes for us. So let's look at it with that in mind, and let's look at this passage with that instruction, if you want to call it that way, or that promise, if you want to look at it that way, I think it would be good to see that also as a promise, because he says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And as God is at work in us to change us and transform us, to make us more and more like him, he is making us holy like he is. Verse 17, if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each, each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Well, the first thing that occurs in here is the term father, a term that, a concept actually that you might say encompasses all biblical theology from the beginning to an end. Fatherhood is not something that we find very common in nature. It is actually an ideal created by God himself and he's created it for our good. A good father takes responsibility for the spiritual welfare of his family, right? A good father is someone we look up to, someone we follow. 
in whose steps we want to walk and we walk. But most importantly, a good father is someone we want to relate to. And here, I usually hear the comment, well, maybe you can speak because you had a good father. Um, I didn't have a good father. Well, uh, let me tell you one thing. Sin has distorted this ideal throughout history. For shame breaks the bond of fellowship between God and us. It divides, it disrupts, it destroys fellowship, and in the process, our human relationships as well. So the reality of fatherhood in this fallen world has really failed to match that ideal, doesn't, hasn't it? So basically, I can say join the club because if you say you haven't had a good father, join the club because none of us has or has had in the past or will have in the future, so to say, because the only one father who's truly and wholly good is God himself. And I think that it's an integral part of that theology. Now, we may have a good father in the sense that, well, my father wasn't as bad as some of the others I heard, but the really good father is only one. God steps into the picture as the perfect father who alone can redeem and restore that relationship with us. And so in here in verse 17, it tells us if we recognize God as our father, then act accordingly. Act accordingly. Act like it. I mean, isn't a father someone we want to relate to? Isn't a good father someone we want to imitate? So Peter here says, then do so, because you acknowledge God as your father, and he is, is the perfect father, the only perfect father, and so therefore act accordingly. Follow in his footsteps, relate to him, connect with him. That you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he has foreign, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. And that is what is stated here. We are not redeemed by what we have or accomplish. What does silver or gold stand to represent there? Well, silver or gold usually is used as a, as a way of describing what we have, our possessions, our material possessions, or what we accomplish. The fact that we're able to gain that or obtain that or secure that is oftentimes regarded as an accomplishment. But it's not what we have accomplished, nor the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, says Peter there, under inspiration of God. But what? What redeems us? But Jesus Christ and him crucified, meaning by his blood, as he states. You know, we have always attempted to heal our relational fracture with God in our own terms, in our own ways, but it really never works. All throughout history, Ever since the very beginning, when humanity has chosen to follow the way of sin, the, to partake of the tree of the, good, of the knowledge of good and evil, we have attempted to find our own ways to, to reconnect, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work because sin does not only disrupt our relationships with one another or with God, but it also causes a deep tear within ourselves. It affects us, a deep wound that disconnects who we, are, we were created to be from who we are in actual living. And so whatever attempts we come up with are going to be distorted just as well and just as much 
So our ways then are distorted and they cannot fulfill the righteousness of God. Just look at the examples in Scripture. You start with Adam and Eve. Well, they sinned. They chose the way of the knowledge of good and evil. They experienced shame. But how did they try to remedy that? They made a covering of leaves to cover their shame. Was that adequate? Well, you may cover it physically, perhaps, so you don't see behind the leaf, but it was not adequate to restore a relationship, was it? God stepped in, and as God stepped in, he killed an animal that was bloodshed, and he gave him a covering of skin, the skin of an animal, signifying what? The only way that relationship can be restored, the only way that shame can be really resolved is through a sacrifice, through the blood of Jesus Christ. Look at Cain. Sometimes people don't quite understand why God did not accept the, the offering of Cain. After all, Abel was a, a, a shepherd and he gave him of, you know, an animal. Cain was a farmer. He gave him some vegetables. And, you know, you might think, well, both gave the equivalent, right? No, not quite. And here's why. Cain and Abel both knew what God had done for Adam and Eve. And Abel imitated God followed God and offered a blood sacrifice that was acceptable. Why? Because it was a depiction, a picture of what God had established that would happen to restore our relationship with him. Cain, however, what did Cain do? Cain did not look at what God was doing. Cain did not look at what God had done. Cain offered God the fruit of his own labor. Sounds familiar? When we read and understand and learn that our labor cannot restore us, the fruit of our labor is not adequate covering, it's not an adequate way to restore that relationship that is broken. Our labor is utterly insufficient for that. What it takes is what God does. And Abel signified that by imitating God, by following God. Cain did not because he did his own thing and offered his own labor. Remember, in the New Testament, Jesus made a similar comment. He said, well, many will come to me and say, Lord, haven't we done this and done that in your name? And Jesus will answer and say, I don't know you. That labor is not sufficient to restore that relationship. Abraham. Abraham was promised a son by God, and he waited for a son, and he waited for a son, and he waited for a son. But then eventually he kind of gave in and did his own thing. Tried to have this son in his own way. And it was a mess. A mess, by the way, that is still affecting history even to our days. That struggle, that fight, that competition that arose at that time between the son of his labor and the son of a promise that God eventually gave him afterwards, that struggle, that conflict is still going on even today. Of many, many other examples throughout the Old Testament, Israel being one of them. Israel would experience his deepest misery when he followed his own ways, but he would be rescued when he finally would humble himself and trust it in God. When Israel would go out and, and try to do his own thing and conquer things, they would lose. But when they would follow God and allow God to step in and deliver them, they would be delivered. Now, in the miracle of the Incarnation, God himself turns it all around and restores, or better perhaps, recreates that bond between God and us, says Peter. And he does it for our sake. 
You see, God created us in his image and likeness, but then what happened? We messed it up. We messed it up, and it's not that God didn't know any better, and now he's forced to fix a problem that he didn't expect. Because even from before the foundation of the world, Christ was appointed to come to be our deliverer and to rescue us. God knew. But in sin, it is a fact that in sin, we have distorted that image of God in us. Because there is no communion between God and sin, is there? There is no communion between the holiness that we are called to have in Christ and the sin that is the fruit of our labors. So what does God do? In that incarnation, in that miracle of the incarnation, God has taken on himself the image of man in order to restore us to him. He took our place so that he can give us his place. Think about that, because that is quite profound. Because as we fail to carry and manifest the image of God in us, God takes the image of man in him, reaches out to us, connects with us, and restores, regenerates, recreates that relationship, that bond that we were always intended to have that we messed up. Look again at verses 20, to 20 and 21. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, as we saw, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So first of all, again, we see that God has done all of that, all of that for us, for our sake. He did not need to do that, but we do. Not because we deserve it, but because he has freely chosen to love us and to enter into an eternal relationship with us. Our efforts, well, our efforts are indeed worthless and insufficient in every aspect, in every way. But what he has done and what he is doing in us is not. It is in him, him, the, the perfect father, you see, that takes responsibility for the spiritual well-being or welfare of his family. It is in him, the perfect father, who establishes an example, sets an example that we want to follow. That perfect father that we want to connect with and be one with. In him that we can place our hope and faith. And that hope and that faith will be secure because he is the only perfect father, one that we can and should look up to. So it is in the incarnation that we come to meet God again and find our true hope and faith in him. In our sin, for example, we can never find life, right? But guess what? God has amply proven that he is the source of life, and he gives us life. That Jesus that his disciples saw being crucified, that Jesus that his disciples saw dead, that Jesus that his disciples buried in a cave, is no longer there. He is risen. He is alive. You and I cannot give ourselves life, but he does. And so once again, that hope that we have, that trust that we have, that faith that we have cannot be placed on ourselves because we are unable to do it, but can and should be placed in him because he is the source of all life and the source of all good. And so in him we have a new life, a new life that is to be spent not in the continuance of sin, not continuing to, to live a life of sin, but in his righteousness and holiness so that our faith and hope are entirely on God, even for every aspect of our life. Now, some people at this point ask the question, yeah, but how? How do I do what verse 17 tells me to conduct myself in fear during the time of my stay on earth? 
Well, first of all, we have already seen, and I think we've seen quite clearly, that our own work doesn't quite accomplish that. It has to be the work of God in us. But does it mean that we continue blissfully to sin? Does it mean that we continue, because it is God doing it in us, does it mean that we can just give ourselves over to all sorts of different problems and sins? Well, no. Because then Jesus would say, you are of your father, the devil, who is the father of all lies. Because we would be living a lie. Is it right, for example, if I were to show myself as a Christian, right? Here I am, I'm the Christian, and while I still am and define myself a Christian, while God is still at work in me, and he does, he works in us, I understand. But then I give myself to all sorts of problems like lying, cheating, unfaithfulness, impurity. Would I be acting in the love of God? No. If I'm lying to you, would I be loving you? Would I be showing the love of God towards you? No, I wouldn't, would I? I would be deceiving you. And Jesus again would say, you are of your father, the devil, who is the father of all lies. In other words, what does that mean? I would be choosing to follow that quote-unquote father instead of God. Now the two have nothing in common, do they? So in verse 17, Peter tells us, well, you are the children of God, right? You consider God as your father, then act like it. I know you cannot, but he does in you. And if you follow him and you surrender to him, he will perform that in you. But as long as we give ourselves to the ways of sin, well, God is not possessing us. God is not forcing us to go the way we don't want to go. We're not puppets. We are not slaves. He has called us to be children. Children who, by their own choice and their own will, just like God, just like you see, God says, be holy, or you shall be holy, for I am holy. And he chooses to love us. He doesn't have to love us, does he? He doesn't need us. He doesn't need to love us. But he, of his own free will, chooses to love us. And so he wants us to choose to love him and one another as well. If he were to force us to do that, there would be no choice. And if there would be no choice, there would be no character. And the very nature of God would not be manifest in us. It would be futile, wouldn't it? So he does give us that choice because he wants us to learn to be like him. He wants to develop that nature in us as well. You shall be holy because I am holy. Translated in a different way, you shall be the way I am, God says. Should I then, as a Christian, continue to steal? How does that reconcile with the holiness of God? Should I, as a Christian, continue to give myself to pornography? How does that reconcile with the holiness of God? Should I continue to be unfaithful? How would that reconcile? Should I pretend that I'm married when I'm not? How would that reconcile? Because that itself is not an expression of love, is it? I've known people that say, well, listen, I don't need to be married. I remember uh, our next-door neighbors in, in New York State when we spent three years there. You know, they, they, they claimed to be Christians, and, I, you know, fine, they were Christians. But then they said, you know, we're not married, but we don't need to be married. And I asked him to explain that. I mean, it's a statement that they volunteered. I guess something in their conscience was working and telling them that they had to express themselves. So, so they came up and they said, no, we're not married, but we don't need to be married. And I asked him to explain, and I said, well, we don't need the paper to show our commitment. And I answered to them, listen, if you don't make that commitment and really take that step of commitment, that means you're holding back you're not really expressing your love to one another. Because in love, I would want to say, listen, you are 
the one, and I am so committed to that, that I will be making it known and clear. Surely enough, they, they kind of almost ridiculed me a little bit, and they said, oh, no, you know what, we're so committed to one another, we'll never, never separate, and so on. Well, until the next year, when they did separate. Of course, they didn't have to go through the paperwork of a divorce because they never had the paperwork of a marriage to begin with. But where was that commitment in reality? Yes, in words. Yes, in, in this somewhat abstract concept, they said, they would say that they're committed, but there was their own way, wasn't it? There was their own way to be committed and it was not really true commitment because they did not express that as an act of love toward one another. In other words, they were staying together out of convenience. When you stay together with someone out of convenience, it's a self-centered process. And what does that have to do with the holiness of God and with the love of God? But when you express your love in that commitment and say, I am committed to you and I want you to be my husband, I want you to be my wife, and that commitment precedes all that, now you have a strong, solid basis to work with. And that is an expression of giving. I want to give you myself thoroughly. Take any other form of our own ways. You know, I need to make some money, so I'm going to cut the corners a little bit. Where is the love of God in that? Where is the holiness of God in that? My accounting doesn't quite fit, so I'm going to just, you know, work with the numbers a little bit, change them here and there, and make sure that it turns out the way I want it to be. Where is the holiness of God in there? Where is the love of God being expressed? Oh, let's not even talk about taxes, right? Perhaps the most common of all is what Jesus talked about, lying. Oh, we have our own categories, don't we? You see the, 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 man, the way of man. We have our own categories. That's a little white lie, and it doesn't matter. But that's a big lie because it affects me and it bothers me. Isn't that self-centered? What about if we are truly children of God? If God is truly our Father and God is truth, and in all truth we say what it is and mean what we say, man, the world would be different, wouldn't it? Imagine really true advertising. Look, people, I have this product to offer you, and it is a very good product if you cons don't, don't consider the 50% uh, rate of returns that we've had because of defects in the manufacturing. But the 50%, it, it works, and it works well. So instead of charging you the full amount of money, if you want to take a chance, we'll offer you to, uh, to you for half the price to cover the 50% of these units that work. And if it happens that yours doesn't work, we'll take it back and replace it with one that does. How many people do you think will go for that kind of advertising? Truth advertising. Wow. You know, sir, I gave you my credit card to charge me $30, but you made a mistake. You punched in $3. Would you please charge me the extra $27? You might see the clerk on the other side of the counter falling down, fainting. You get the point, right? Our ways always compromise one way or the other. They end up compromising with things. Because our ways are distorted by the very break, by the very fracture that we have within ourselves that divides and separates who we are created to be from who we tend to be in our daily life. Christ has breached that again. Christ in his way has redeemed us. We have had that shedding of a blood that really covers the sin, that covers the problem, not so that we can continue to live according to the world or according to our own ways, but so that we can, like Peter said in here, indeed conduct ourselves in fear during the time of our staying on earth as truly children of God, sharing and partaking of his holiness because he says, you shall 
be holy because I am holy. You want to be God-like? You want to be who you're created to be? If we do, we know the way. Stop doing our own things and let's do God things. Cain thought he was doing the right thing by offering the fruit of his labor. Here, God, you, you know, this is what I do. I'm a farmer. Here's a whole bunch of edges. God says, no, that's not adequate. Is that because God does not respect that kind of labor? No, it's because it does not reflect the way of God. Because again, once again, it reflects our own way of doing things, our own choices, our own rationalization. What God respects is for us to be more and more like him. And therefore, look at what he does and participate in that. Be part of it. Let's look at verses 22 and 23. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. It is in that new birth in Christ that we find holiness, the holiness of God being manifest. It is not in our own devices, it's not in our own ways, not in our own work, but in that new birth that Christ has given us. And it manifests itself in the expression of the love of God, as we've seen, a love that fulfills all law, by the way, and a love that is expressed toward God, first and foremost, and above all things, and toward one another. That love, the love of God expressed in and through us, is that restoration of the bond between God and us, because God is love. And so, in a way, it says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You might paraphrase it and say another thing. You shall love, because I am love. And that love restores. That love, the love of God, the love that has no no shadow of self-centeredness and selfishness within itself is what reconnects the relationship between us and God. And through that relationship with God, it also reconnects us with one another and rebuilds that connection. We are created to be social beings. We as humans are social. We are created for relationships. First and foremost, above all, the relationship with God, but also relationship with one another. We're going to be spending all eternity together in that bond of relationship. And here is the time that we have. Here, now, is the time to start. Because God has given us that life now. But it cannot be based on our own ways. I know I said it and said it and said it, but I'll probably end up repeating until I have any breath left in me because it seems like it takes a lot of repeating for us to get that. A very simple message. But throughout history, we still don't get it, do we? We still try to build our own tower to reach up to God instead of recognizing that He has reached out to us to change us and transform us and say, Lord, you, not me. I am crucified with Christ. And the life I now live in the flesh is no longer I who lives it, but Christ who lives in me, who gave Himself for me, says the Apostle Paul. It summarizes it, doesn't it? It contains it all. So God is our perfect Father, our caregiver, our model, our rescuer, our redeemer. We are called to conduct ourselves as his children in fear and reverence. We are to let his love, not sin, be filling our hearts and be expressed as we love one another in him. So let us be like him as he restores our oneness with him through Christ. And through that, he establishes our oneness with one another because he is making us holy just as he is holy. 
Join me in prayer, please. How can we begin to thank you, Lord? How can we even begin to thank you, Father, for warming us, choosing us, loving us, making us holy as you are, pouring your love in us so that we can be like you again in that? How can we even begin to thank you, Lord God Almighty, for all you've done for us and for calling us to, to be like you? Make us holy. Please make us holy, as you say you would, as you do. But give us a heart, a heart that responds, a heart that really appreciates that, a heart that really says, not me, but you, God. We are not here for ourselves. We are here for you. Make us like you are. Transform us. Change us. Reconnect. Reestablish that bond that we were always intended to have with you as we are more and more like you. And let your love be manifest in every way, in all that we do. And every time... We make a choice. Every time we make a decision, every time, Father, that we, we have something that we want to do, that we desire to do, let us, let us in our hearts evaluate, am I being holy as you are, Father, are holy, or am I just following my own lust, my own will, my own desires, my own way? Because, Father, you have shown us throughout history and throughout your word that our ways don't quite work. So let your will be fulfilled in us and give us a heart of surrender and a heart of joy in that. So we praise you and thank you and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.